On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe and Yes's Union. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter as we continue to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Yes by covering Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howe, and Union. Are we doing this willingly, or are we just doing it because... Uh, All right, here's, here's, here's the dirty secret. I'm doing this willingly. I find this whole... This whole set of time and albums and music to be completely fascinating. I'm not going to say that it's always spectacular, but I do find it fascinating. We can approach this with a sense of fascination. Absolutely. There's been a lot of talk in our group over the last week or two about these two albums in particular. There is the discussion, well, is ABWH a yes album? And it was one of those things where, I mean, it's it's a yes album in everything but name. And in fact, it, it has been sort of canonized. If you go to yesworld.com, which is the website for Steve Howe Yes or Yes Official or Official Yes, whatever you want to call them, the ABWH album and the live album are actually ensconced in the discography And the box set, in a word that came out, I don't even know when it was, probably late 90s, I would imagine, it also has tracks from ABWH on it. So there's enough precedent here for us to consider this in the, the yes sequence. We've told the story, and a lot of the palaver has to do with our experience with you know the various albums we talk about big generator was the gateway for the group and and you were the first through that gate the supposition that i had at the time and i still have unless you want to disabuse me of that is that you probably drug me along through the door on many a trip down to the spectrum to see the flyers there were various contingents of us who went to see both the big generator tours that was where we got into it We've also discussed previously that Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe was sort of, uh, you know, this. I, I think, at least in my case, the start of education into older yes, whereas I knew it existed. I didn't really know that much about it. I vaguely remember when ABWH came out, it was billed as the quote unquote true yes album. It was billed as something bigger than I think perhaps it winds up being. That's not to say that it's it's not good. And and I remember seeing ABWH performed twice on that tour as well. And then, of course, Union was fascinating. I remember Union came out before the birth of the Internet. All we knew was that there was an album coming out featuring eight members of Yes. I have clear recollections of, you know, wondering what is this going to be like? And we had no indication at the time that it was just two separate groups performing and and a bunch of tracks getting mangled together onto an album. And I remember the first time I heard Lift Me Up, it was our junior year of college, and Lift Me Up came on the radio as I was as my alarm was going off. So I'm I'm lying in bed and I heard them announce that they were gonna play the new Yes single. 
And I'm like, yeah. And Lift Me Up came on. And while I absolutely love the song now, I have very clear memories of kind of listening to it and going, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what the, the the eight super musicians came up with. Really? Huh. <laughs> and then, of course, like I said, it you know, you, you buy the album and you sort of figure out what actually happened with it. And the fact that it's not a, a complete collaboration. I understand why people get upset about that, why it doesn't really work for them. My dirty secret is I actually don't mind Union that much. I'm not going to say it's at the top of my list. I was thinking about this based on, Paul, what you had said the other day, where you were sort of ranking that ABWH was better than Tormato, better than Union, and less better than Big Generator. And I was, for a couple days, I was willing to put Union above ABWH, and now I think it's maybe a dead heat. And it's funny when you look on on the internets and, and and everything else, it seems that the real benefit of Union was that tour. And I have since purchased both the CD and the DVD of that that concert. And it's it's pretty spectacular. All I remember is you guys taking me to one of the shows. I guess you saw two and I tagged along for one. And I turned to somebody and I said, Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and how could you bring me here? <laughs> retrospect i like some of this stuff so we'll see yeah absolutely paul any sort of general thoughts before we get into the the music context of these two well, i remember the anticipation of the union album coming out matt blasic the death-defying matt blasic a uh, friend of mine who <laughs> he was interning at the lancaster rock radio station and they had a single of Lift Me Up. He loaded Lift Me Up onto a cart quite illegally and brought it to the college radio station. And I played it. And when it was done, I think I even spoke over the airwaves. I talked about, okay, well, you know, it wasn't what I expected, but I said something to the effect of, I think you can hear how all the different band members are contributing. I talked about Steve Howe's guitar part and everything like that. (laughs) Only to to realize it was a complete farce several weeks later. If Union came out today, we would know everything about it a year before the music was actually released. We would know who was there, who was in what studio at what time, you know, who ate curry and who didn't. But back then, we had no way of knowing. All we knew was there was an album with eight yeah. members. <laughs> Chris Kimsey took all the curry. <laughs> <laughs> the timeline between these two albums is fascinating to me. I think a lot of the conversation that we've been having sort of offline has to do with you know how this album sounds and and the gang vocals and 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 all of that so maybe can the the musical context of these sure. two years will provide us some insight 1989 we had presto from rush we had seasons end from marillion which we cannot talk enough about mm. Gretchen goes to Nebraska, which we dream in our sleep. It's ingrained into our DNA. Peter Gabriel's passion, no doubt. Uh, Queen had the miracle in this year. Dream Theater, when dream and day unite. Going to, uh, yes, is Union in 1991. 
Uh, well, I, I, I suppose I, I could do a quick drive-by 1990 just because I'm fascinated that King's X pulled off Faith, Hope, Love in that short period of time after Gretchen goes to Nebraska. It's also remarkable that uh, Fish was very productive in this period. In 1990, he had Vigil in a Wilderness of Mirrors. In 1991, Internal Exile. So very yes. productive. Yes, very like both of those, period. like both of those records, better than Union. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Many things here that we like. Rush did roll the bones in 1991. Oh, Mr. Bungle, Mr. Bungle, 1991, Porcupine Tree on the Sunday of Life. Marillion does their best White Snake impersonation with Holidays in Eden, 1991. <laughs> oh boy, Queen has in innuendo. Frank Zappa, Make a Jazz Noise here. Wonderful album. Joe, that's your context. It's interesting. One of the things that Ken and I talked about last episode was how I wish that we had gotten more of the, the Trevor Yes uninterrupted. It's difficult to sort of judge those four songs that are, are mixed in the middle here and what would have happened if they hadn't sort of stopped what they were doing and, and jumped into the camp with the ABWH folks. And I do think that going from 90125 through talk, you can sort of see a continuum with Trevor. Yes. But I would have liked to have seen what they would have done, you know, in the absence of, of what yeah. happened. In retrospect for me, I kind of feel like the Trevor stuff on Union is more like Can't Look Away Part 2. And I really yeah. love Trevor's solo album, Can't Look Away. I, I think it's fantastic. I don't quite think that Trevor songs on Union measure up. I would prefer more John Anderson vocals instead of too many Trevors. I wouldn't mind having a bunch of John Andersons mixed in on like the chorus of Lift, <laughs> of, uh, Lift Me Up. You've got too many everybody on these. Let me do the official precursor for these albums, and then we can oh, just yeah. throw the throw the floor open and, and cover what we need to cover. And I should warn our listeners that our plan at this point is not to cover these albums in their entirety in every song as we normally do, but rather to each one of us will touch on you know one or two high points and one or two low points for each one that I think will sort of tell the story that we want to tell. Anderson Bruford, Wake When How, was released in June of 1989. It was produced by John Anderson and friend of the palaver, Chris Kimsey. It was released on the label Arista. It featured John Anderson on vocals, Bill Bruford. And if you read the wikis, Bill is credited with Tama acoustic drums and Simmons SDX electronic drums. Rick Wakeman on keyboards and Steve Howe on guitar. Also credited are one Tony Levin, yummy, bass and Chapman stick, and also credited with vocals. Matt Clifford gets credited for keyboards, programming, orchestration, and vocals. And Milton McDonald is credited with rhythm guitar. The track listing for ABWH is Themes, which is a three-part suite. Fist of Fire, Brother of Mine, also a three-part suite. Birthright, The Meeting, Quartet, which is, get it, a four-part suite. The just abysmal Teakbaugh. <laughs> yes. 
Order of the Universe, which is also a four-part suite, and let's pretend. Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe is the only studio album by the English progressive rock band Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe, released in June 1989 on Arista Records. The group formed in 1988 after singer John Anderson left Yes and reunited with former Yes members Bill Bruford, Rick Wakeman, and Steve Howe to start a new band. A selection of demos were put down in France before recording took place in Montserrat and London, during which Bruford suggested Tony Levin play bass on the album. Several artists received songwriting credits, including Jeff Downs, Max Bacon, Rhett Lawrence, and Van Gillis. Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe received a warm critical and commercial reception upon its release, reaching number 14 on the UK Albums Chart and number 30 on the US Billboard 200. August 1989, the album was certified gold by the RIAA for selling 500,000 copies in the U.S. The band released Brother of Mine, Order of the Universe, and I'm Alive as singles in 1989. Wow. Union was released in April of 1991. Producers credited are Jonathan Elias, Steve Howe, Trevor Rabin, Mark Mancina, and Eddie Offord, also released on the Arista label. Band lineup includes John Anderson, Steve Howe, Trevor Rabin, Chris Squire, Tony Kay, Rick Wakeman, Bill Bruford, Alan White. There's a whole host of, of studio musicians who are listed on the wikis, but the three that we will point out specifically here are Jonathan Elias, Billy Sherwood, and Tony Levin. Track listing for Union is I Would Have Waited Forever, Shock to the System, Masquerade, Lift Me Up, Without Hope You Cannot Start the Day, Saving My Heart, Miracle of Life, Silent Talking, The More We Live, Let Go, Angkor Wat, Dangerous, Look Into the Light of What You're Searching For, Holding On, Even Song, and Take the Water to the Mountain. Union is the 13th studio album by the English rock band Yes, released on 30 April 1991 by Arista Records. Production began in 1990 following the amalgamation of two bands featuring current and previous members of Yes at the time. Yes, consisting of Chris Squire, Trevor Rabin, Tony Kaye, and Alan White, and Anderson Bruford, Wakeman Howe, consisting of, guessed it, John Anderson, Steve Howe, Rick Wakeman, and Bill Bruford. The album is a collection of tracks written and performed by each group separately. Recording was met with differences from the beginning, including the merger of the two groups in internal relations, and the decision by producer Jonathan Elias to have session musicians play parts already put down by Wakeman and Howe. Those are the shenanigans, gentlemen, that we will get into. But I do want to very quickly just kind of go over, because I think the the timeline here is just fascinating. So in 1986, Steve releases GTR. This after spending the first part of the 80s with Asia. He goes and does GTR with Steve Hackett. In 1987, Big Generator comes out. Yes, tours through 1987 and into 1988. I believe they finished that tour around April of 1988. And all of a sudden, John leaves. ABWH is recorded and is released in 1989. John Anderson doesn't fuck around. I would say we are looking at the two best Anderson solo albums. <laughs> uh, maybe. Bouncing over to the Trevor timeline, then, Can't Look Away is released in 1989. 
Recording for ABWH2, which ultimately turns into Union, starts in 1990, and then Union comes out in, in 91. It's amazing when you talk about how long it takes bands to write and record music these days. John Anderson effectively winds up in three groups and I believe released a solo album in the middle of all of this as well. It was an exciting time, personally, getting into Yes, really, through Big Generator and seeing the tour in 87, seeing the the rest of the tour in 88, going to college and really starting to deep dive into the Yes album, Fragile, and, and classic Yes, right? And then finding out that John Anderson was getting back together with the guys who I was just starting to get to understand their part in the Yes world. It was really exciting to think of the Yes Band touring and playing all those songs and giving us new material. All of that happening like sequentially, like year after year, was very exciting. And the best thing about the Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman and Howe tour was that they played close to the edge. And I hadn't really been able to get into Close to the Edge until I saw it live. And I saw them play it live, and I was like, that was incredible. And then I completely immersed myself into Close to the Edge. And when I saw them the second go-around, it was even better, because I actually knew the song and could follow along. It was a really exciting time to be sort of a younger, developing Yes fan. Ken apparently didn't necessarily feel that way. (laughs) (laughs) i just remember it being noisy i don't know that it translated for me oh if you you have the dvd i i I promise i will i will absorb the whole thing i need to address something and it it's going to show up on my my list of bad things from abwh but as i've been preparing for this and listening to ABWH, as well as uh, the the two live albums that I have. Oh, my freaking God, what the fuck was Bill Bruford thinking with that snare sound? It is the most (laughs) pain-inducing, distracting thing I have ever heard in my life. Didn't someone say, hey, Bill? I get it. Electric drum is really cool, man. Get a different sound. And what's what's really <laughs> annoying is that he actually does have a different sound. Bill actually has a much more toned down and endurable snare sound. And I don't know why he didn't just use that. But that that snare sound is just it's terrible and it has been causing me like mental anguish for the last couple of weeks this harkens back to a memory that i have of this this record and this story takes place at that pool hall that was in like oh yeah not quite quite lansdale but it was like north walesy kind of on 309 yep and i want to say we were all there on you know some thursday night or friday night shooting pool and it was right at the time that this album came out. Brother of mine had been on the radio. I'm pretty sure the collective opinion of the group was that Brother of mine was okay, but it was a little suspect. We weren't really sure. I, I think I was into it, but 
I don't know that the whole group had bought it hook, line, and sinker. For whatever reason, they decided to play the beginning of the album. They played themes. And so we were all like very anxious and happy to hear it. And we're all like, I remember standing against the wall with my pool cue, listening to the tinkling pianos and the do, 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 and thinking, okay, yeah, Rick Wakeman, this is pretty cool. I can feel it. This is kind of going somewhere. And as we're sitting there, breathless with anticipation, the drum fill that brings us into the the main (laughs) verse hits... And the look on all of our faces was just like, oh, my God, what was that? (laughs) (laughs) We were just totally deflated. Like I said, it's just it's painful. It really, really is. By the way, for those of you who are interested at home, Max Bacon gets a writing credit on Birthright. Oh, cool. Not a bad tune. I mean, it works live. Birthright is one of the songs that I like a lot, and I think that's because I don't think there's any snare in the the song at all. (laughs) Maybe that was where the real (laughs) snare was, Joe. It's all Tom. (laughs) (laughs) The weird thing is that, you know, the, 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 the Simmons drum technology started to be developed in the 70s, and they had a few different things kind of peaking and 83 and 85 with different models. 87, they had a hot model. But by 89, the company was losing money. Bill Bruford's not necessarily a pioneer. He's on the tail end of some of this. I asked the question of Jay in the chat the other day. Why why was Bill seemingly so unsuccessful in integrating the electronic drums when other people seemed to do it much better? You know, and the examples I gave were were Neil and Phil, and I would even say that to a certain degree, you know, Alex Van Halen on 5150 and OU812 did it much better. I don't recall wanting to punch myself in the head listening to any of those. (laughs) It seems like all of those drummers that you just mentioned, they must have gotten like the cool uh, module brain sounds. (laughs) <laughs> and Bill Bruford must have had all the leftovers. You would think someone of, of Bill Bruford's ball size would be able to get all of the plugins, right? Well, okay, so this is where this is where I'm <laughs> gonna defend I'm gonna defend Bill Bruford because at, because the fun part of this is when we went through the first half of the catalog, we all gushed on how wonderful and lovely Bruf, Bill Bruford is. Because we never really gave him the proper credit and the proper due and respect when we first discovered yes in large part because of these terrible sounds yeah. on these records and that silly rack behind the drum set <laughs> with his shaking his ass and playing them at the shows it really just t- t- it turned was, us it was off <laughs> right but everything that i've learned about bill bruford over the last particularly this past year and a half or so is that he always was looking forward. He was always looking to do something that somebody else wasn't doing. So maybe by now, all the really good sounds were taken, and he was trying to push the envelope even further. With shitty sounds on purpose. He was pushing and pushing, and he missed the mark. But you got to give him props. 
for Darren Greatly, right? You got to. I, I, he certainly invested in and dug in and you know put himself out for that. So that's right. At least know, he went down swinging hard, swinging his ass yeah. hard in the batter's box. And when we were talking about the the video, parts of that in terms of of the technique, clearly the guy he's got wicked talent. Sometimes genius is misunderstood. In this case, it's universally misunderstood i think all that being said i happen to really like themes it's definitely one of the highlights of the album for me i have two questions with regards to this the first question i'm curious your thoughts on steve howe's guitar tone on abwh he's the benjamin button of guitar (laughs) sounds he starts and warm and wonderful and he just gets thinner and weirder and crazier. He's a garnish in this in this process. He does share some riffy stuff with Wakeman, but he is definition of garnish by the time you get to Union. Union's a whole different thing, especially with the production shenanigans that went on. But I, as I was listening to this, you know, we spent a lot of time discussing Steve Howe's guitar sound. And as I was listening to this, I was like, this is as Trevor-esque as Steve Howe was ever going to get. Just in terms of, you know, it's it's not a very dry sound for him. He's got, you know, some sustain going and stuff. I mean, a lot of, and even Steve Howe today, it's very truncated. You know, there's, there's nothing carrying on. The distortion is not, I, I didn't find it in any way, shape, or form grating. It's definitely probably his most polished tone. Extremely processed. At least in my mind, it, it, it was fitting his progression. We talked about Asia. He, he, I think someone finally said, hey, listen, you need to make this sound good so that you know, we can sell some records. And, um, <laughs> I think with GTR, there were a lot more effects, and the guitars had a little bit more of a polished and processed. And I really think that it fit to its greatest extent on ABWH and I would also credit some of that to Chris Kimsey because, you know, Chris Kimsey did a lot of work on the Marillion album. I, I want to say he produced Misplaced Childhood. There's a lot of similarity, I think, to his tone in like Brother of Mine and some of the other tunes as as we hear on like Hearts of Lothian on um, Misplaced Childhood and, and things like that. Excellent. I love it. And the other question that I have is, and, and again, we're talking about ABWH here because this was supposed to be something different. Is Tony Levin understated on purpose? You can't talk about yes without talking about Squire and the bass as the lead instrument. In fact, Kevin Mulrine from the Yes Music podcast, that's one of his sort of beefs with, with ARW calling themselves yes because he feels that they don't allow Lee to really take enough of the limelight with with the playing, and that if you're going to call yourself yes, you have to be five frontmen, if you will, as opposed to three with a couple guys backing you up. Wow, really? I mean, I think Lee gets to step out quite a bit. I'm just telling you what he told me. Yeah, I'm surprised. I'm just surprised by that comment, that's all. Yeah, I find myself in the Coven Mulrine camp. I think the bass doesn't have that brightness. When you guys see Steve Howe's Yes in July, you're going to see the difference. 
because okay. with with Billy there, it's almost like Chris is there. When you get to ABWH now, if you can't have Chris Squire, you may as well have Tony Levin. So you could have had some real sort of flamboyant, you know, spectacular base stuff going on, and you don't. So the question that I have is, is that on purpose? Did they say, hey, we don't want to draw attention to this, you know, kind of tone it down? Or, I mean, am I just making shit up? As much as I'm a fan of Tony Levin, as I will profess to be a fan of him, I really only know a little bit of his work with King Crimson, which is pretty off the charts, and the stuff he's done with Peter Gabriel, which is also off the charts, but off the charts in a different way. And I kind of feel like the ABWH is somewhere in the middle musically of those two things. The answer to the question is probably yes, Joey's probably understated on purpose, but not because of any ulterior motive or them saying, no, 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 Tony, don't do that. We want you to, you know, we want you to be low key, that it may just have been just coming in and sort of playing the session guy. I don't know. Not a big fan of Fist of Fire, personally. The backing vocals are a little weird to me. I don't know that there's anything notable in there other than annoying trumpet sounds coming out of Rick Wakeman's keyboards. Oh, man, I wanted just to... Yeah, that's awful. How but can anyway. you not like Fist of Fire? It's like the carrier sail the ships of light. It's just, it's just a mantra. I like all yeah. the mantras. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's yeah, here's the problem I think with that I have with Fist of Fire. I think it sort of illustrates the problem with most of this record, with the exception perhaps of Brother of Mine. They don't seem to have any interest at all in playing a melody. It's the anti-90125. They're purposefully being obtuse. I do like the assertiveness. You could make the case. Going late into the 90125 process and kind of playing second fiddle to Rabin, he kind of just did some high stuff. He, he was a little breathy during that period. But by the time you get here, he's like, damn it, I'm the lead singer and I'm going to kick some ass. He came for business when he came to ABWH and Union. We talk about peak Getty where he's just got control of the instrument. At this point, Anderson can kind of do the power for a long time without consequences. So I've got a quote here from John Anderson that, that fits in perfectly with, with what you just said there, Ken. I like having lead singer's disease, Anderson laughed. I have to let the others know I'm listening. Yes, we're making me feel like a sideman, and I'll never be a sideman for anyone. Wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. Our beloved brother, Thomas Corcoran of the Palaver, wrote to us. Is, is not a big fan of these albums. <laughs> ABWH is a respectable but forgettable album filled with everything you'd expect to hear in a traditional yes recording, minus any heart, soul, or passion. <laughs> <laughs> Brother of Mine is the highlight of the album and the chorus of Order of the Universe is fun. But all in all, this is just a bunch of brilliant musicians with no vision on what they want to achieve with this album. Bill Bruford's arrogant ass has no excuse for why these great people 
have come up completely empty-handed while having all of their polished tools at their disposal. Rick Wakeman obviously feels free to express himself here because he's completely unhinged from start to finish. (laughs) (laughs) This record sounds more like one of his solo albums than any respectable Yes album they've done. I really wish John Anderson gave more direction to the band. I think he just wings things and hopes for the best. Chris Squire's vocals are missed as John's piercing voice gets harder to swallow by itself as he gets older. There has to be something to smooth John's voice out, and this album leaves him raw and exposed. Uh, he gets into Tikwa, but gentlemen, I think we can handle that ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's fascinating because we spent a decent amount of time on the 90125 and Big Generator sections talking about the beautiful melange that is John Anderson, Trevor, and Chris vocally. And uh-huh. and he's absolutely right. We don't have that here. I've got another quote here from Steve. Apparently, very quickly after he left, yes, John Anderson showed up at Steve's place and said, let's do this. And Steve happened to have some songs lying around. And so he apparently gave John some cassettes and John went off and started doing, you know, the things that John does. So I'll, I'll pick up here. This is from an article called yes, minus one, the history of Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howe, which is from ultimate classic rock.com exciting or not. Howe admitted that Anderson's control eventually left him somewhat out of the loop on the album quote. There are a couple of things on it. I'm not even part of. He continued, John was ruling the roost on the project. That album was upsetting to me only at the mix stage. I kind of hit the roof at that point thinking, oh dear, it got mixed like other albums had during the 80s. To me, that meant the amazing ability to pull out the feel. I felt, hey, we have a band playing here and that should be reflected in the mix. But it was cleaned up, digitized, and endlessly transferred between different systems. Some of the record is very spiky and hard. Steve Howe seems to feel the way Tom does. It's a fair assessment because you don't really have the impression of a band playing on this. Audio art rock. You know, it's a collage. Anything goes. It doesn't have the uh, limitations of a band. Uh Yeah. So do we want to talk about a couple of good points, low points for ABWH? I like themes. I do like Brother of Mine a lot it was really cool when that came out i'm with you joe the other highlight for me is birthright i think they told the story very well i've mentioned this before one highlight for me is the line my music is the only witness to my very soul which is from tikwa overall that song is is not great that's being very generous well he did that song at the beginning of the abwh tour Remember when he walked out yeah. into the crowd and the guy was playing the acoustic guitar and he did Time in a Word. Then he got to the stage, did Owner of a Lonely Heart. And the keyboard player came out and they busted from Owner of a Lonely Heart into the section of Tikwa where that line is featured. Yeah. And that works very well. And then they transitioned back to Owner of a Lonely Heart and then he wrapped up his little intro. 
And I think that's where I discovered that line because I, I couldn't get through the song probably on the record. Um, you probably couldn't even find it in the big mess that is that song. <laughs> yeah. Wish I would have waited forever was on, was on Anderson, Proof Wakeman and how, because then it would all be on one disc. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, what made it to the radio? Long lost brother of mine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why is that so long? Was there a radio edit? Because I feel like there was a radio edit. For those of you listening at home, I recommend you go and check out the Yes Music podcast episode on the ABWH singles where Kevin and Mark go into great detail about the different versions that were released as singles. I mean, it doesn't need to be 10 minutes. You, 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 you can get the message in so many arrangements of this. I want to say there were there were mixes ranging from like three and a half minutes to six or seven. I like the ten minute version. I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I like it. Long. <laughs> I I have it as a as a high point. I think it's it's you know as good as you know this group of musicians did. Yeah, I agree. So I, so did Bill just not screw up, brother of mine? The snare sound is still terrible, but it's not like that opening fill-in themes that, that Paul told the story about. At the very end, that piano part is just freaking beautiful. But the horns, the keyboard horns, are really dreadful, even though I really <laughs> like the song. <laughs> Ken, what are your good points here for AB, ABWH? I gotta say, Fist of Fire works for me. Birthright works for me. I did find some online comments. If Birthright is about the English army testing an atomic bomb in Australia, why do you have that woodblock and some kind of mamacita Latino thing at the end? Just very weird. The quartet kind of hurts. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to feel in there. I I tried. I feel like I sacrificed myself and didn't get anything out of it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and order of the universe, man. I, I, I. Uh, it's hard. My own feeling is order of the universe. John's just yelling at me, and I don't really need that. Fair enough. We still have this stellar quote from Tom, and I'm just going to put it out there. Tikwa is my least favorite song on here. I'm convinced this is a B-side of the Beach Boys song "Kokomo" from the Cocktail soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> this song is absolutely atrocious. If John Anderson thought Big Generator was taking Yes in the wrong direction, he took the core band members back to an exotic island of strange apathy with this song. I don't care who wrote this nightmare. Everyone associated with it should be hit over the head with Wakeman's Casio keyboard. (laughs) This is really painful stuff to swallow, gentlemen. Smart, talented people making really bad decisions. I don't disagree. (laughs) <laughs> i think this album ages fairly well isn't the meeting on this a record that song is it, is wonderful yes. i forgot to mention that that's a beautiful song and i know they played it at arw i love it. it it works so much better live than it does in this album i i agree with you yeah that's for yeah, sure it, it um, does for me the highlights are brother of mine i, I love birthright i absolutely love this freaking cover art i think the cover Mm -hmm. is off the charts good the other good thing i've got listed down here is john and rick 
there's something special that can happen when John and Rick get together. We talked, I think, about the living tree a little bit. We talked about the meeting, um, certainly live from the ARW shows. Ironically here, while the, the meeting is, is, is listed here as well, I also put Fist of Fire under this John and Rick category because, really, is anyone else playing on that, on that song? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a completely different Rick. When, when those two are kind of clicking, they can really do some spectacular things together, and I really enjoy that. My low points of ABWH, Teakbois, obviously. The ironic thing is it's fun to say Teakbois, but the the sound the song is just atrocious. It is terrible. It should never have been recorded. And it is one of the few songs when doing these sorts of things that I will skip over. I absolutely refuse to listen to it anymore. I, I just will not waste any more of my life on that song. And, and as discussed previously, Bill Bruford's snare sound. So then that brings us into Union. There were shenanigans with this. The ABWH section, Steve and Rick had laid down basic tracks, and it would, they were stored on some computer somewhere, and they each had solo commitments outside, and so I guess they weren't on hand. And John Anderson and, and Jonathan Elias then you know wanted to do their thing, and so Elias started having session musicians overdub the guitar and keyboard no one told Steve and Rick about this to the point where the album comes out and they're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> I've spent a lot of time sort of fixating on Steve Howe recently. There are a couple of there. There are actually a couple of tracks on Union which show up on Steve Howe's solo album of this. Yeah, of I this remember term. that. Um, turbulence. Clearly, they're they're Steve Howe songs, and and I guess Steve Howe plays on it. But but if you listen to it with a semi critical ear, it's hard to tell that Steve Howe plays on this record. I think I've been listening really hard over the last few days, and and when I think about it, I I really don't know that any of the keyboards sound anything like Rick Wakeman at all. I'm embarrassed that it took me this long to come to that realization. I knew that the ABWH parts of Union weren't great, but it never occurred to me how obvious it is that none of it sounds like Rick Wakeman. I'm in, I'm in that same camp with you. I always used to think that Rick Wakeman was just going through a strange phase during this part of his, his career. <laughs> and then uh, he was just not playing. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And I love the stories about how these guys came in to do their tracks and Jonathan Elias would go in and say, I want you to play this as close to 90125 as you can. And then like an hour later, John Anderson would come in and say, it sounds way too much like 90125. You need to make it sound not like that. <laughs> what a disaster. I've got another quote here from Steve. From the, the the same ultimateclassicrock.com article, more problematic than the overall sound was the wholesale removal of performances that might have resonated with longtime Yes fans. Quote, there are some very sad edits, particularly on that lovely ABWH song, Take the Water to the Mountain, that ended up on Union, Howe lamented. 
the quote continues, the song was phenomenal. Tony Levin and I played great stuff on it, and it all got edited out. Those are the kind of things that happened. Would you wow. not love to hear Steve Howe and Tony Levin going off on Take the Water to the Mountain? You I know, I hear that. I want to say there's some demos on YouTube that probably have that, but I've never listened to them because I think that <laughs> song is just boring as shit. <laughs> well, apparently th this is why. I mean, there may be something else there that we didn't get. The heavy irony now that John is with Trevor again is that John didn't want to do the commercial stuff and he wanted to do more yesy things. And obviously they, they tried to move towards that with ABWH with the young, with the longer form songs and everything else. But if this was going to be the ABWH follow-up, it's moved way back in the direction away from that. If again, if the union had never happened, this album would have been totally incongruous as well. So I just I find that to be funny. And, you know, the tale you told, Paul, about, you know, the make it sound like a 90125. Oh, that sounds too much like 90125. You know, it's just uh, I, I think I think there were too many conflicting desires at this point and, and yeah. they couldn't get out of their own damn way. I think Trevor says it in his in his interviews. He wanted to play and he didn't care. and he saw this as a means to getting out on the road as quickly as possible. And it seemed to work out in my continuing saga of learning. Yes. Like this tour gave me awaken. Oh yes. And, and made me comprehend what a, what a masterpiece that was, which then opened my eyes to the, no pun intended to the <laughs> greatness of going for the one. Thank goodness for it. The one story that I find fascinating that all of this really came about, and ironically, again, Arista listening to the ABWH tracks and saying, you guys need a single. And apparently right. John, John reached out to Trevor and said, what you got? And Trevor said, well, I got four songs. I can send you these four songs. You can have one of them, which is, I mean, given the way that it's portrayed that John left, it is absolutely amazing. And, and that, you know, th that this sort of conversation would even occur. And I can only imagine, you know, again, I don't, I don't know, but I can only imagine what, what Steve <laughs> would have thought about, about, you know, having to, you know, presumably record a Trevor song so that his, his record had a single on it. Um, that would have been very, very interesting. And, you know, as the lore goes, John heard the four songs and said, I want them all. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so the the union came to be. And, and you know, here again, I, one of the drawbacks of this album is the fact that, you know, these songs were apparently, you know, recorded entirely separately. And again, so what happened was. The Chris Squire came in and sang some backing vocals on the ABWH stuff, and John came in and just kind of dropped in vocals where it was appropriate on the on the Raven stuff. The whole thing feels like, you know, some sort of slapdash prefabricated thing. The shortcomings of this album have to sit in the lap of Jonathan Elias and, by extension, his associate producer, John Anderson. I still don't hate this album. I really, really don't. For me, the highlights are 
Trevor Rabin. I, I just, I love everything that Trevor does. This is sort of, in a lot of ways, this is Trevor unhinged, you know, because I think he had, I have the impression that he'd written and recorded a lot of these songs in the absence of John. And apparently Chris never had any desire to rein in Trevor. So this is where you start to get, and I think, Ken, you had talked about this. Trevor has a lot of different guitar sounds going on um, here. Trevor's vocals, while spectacular, are maybe a bit more than is totally required by this. But I still love the Trevor songs. And ironically enough, my favorite track on this album, and you guys could guess it, is The More We Live, Let Go, which is... Oh, yeah. is is part two in the Yes Joe Music trilogy that encompasses Shoot High, Aim Low, The More We Live, Let Go, and Real Love on Talk. But Wow. <laughs> I'll take that. It's mood music. I'm down. Yeah. But but the ironic thing here is that this is a Billy Sherwood piece. That's right. So there you go. But I, I absolutely, absolutely love it. My low points of this have to do with the, you know, I'll I'll, I'll bow to the the group, and I'll put a, a big thumbs down on the overwhelming use of gang vocals, and the drum sounds. I think the drum sounds on a lot of this record are terrible. It sounds like they're playing on phone books or something, and I'm not quite sure what the <laughs> hell that's all about. <laughs> Ken, your high points and 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 not so high points for. Union. Oh, my high point wouldn't be the album itself. It would be the Trevor Rabin interview talking about how they brought him back into the album. (laughs) 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 Like, he implies that it's not all buddy-buddy. They were just kind of at the mercy of the record company needing its, like you said... Uh, yeah, I think it's it, it, it's out there on the YouTubes. Uh, I went the duration of that whole interview and, and found it eye-opening. What I had to do to tolerate Union, I've got this playlist going on. Uh, Big Generator goes straight into ABWH, and ABWH goes straight into Union. And by the time I got to the end of Union... I queued up Tormato because I needed something with live musicians. <laughs> and that's what you chose. <laughs> I needed live. What What is more live than Tormato? Um, but Saving My Heart. I mean, the YouTubes uh, have that fantastic rendition with, with, with John introducing the track, talking about going over to have Trevor's house. They really uh, nail the harmonies and... They turn it into a song instead of just a, a sequenced mush. I'm with the bulk of the the Yes fan population where, 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 where this is antithetical to the mission. Mr. Zada? I'll start with my low points. Without hope, you can't start today. Not a big fan. Miracle of life, or maybe it's actually pronounced miracle of life. Not sure. Because <laughs> everyone is pronouncing it different on the track. <laughs> <laughs> that's just like a dumb song that's sort of like trying to be like another changes i feel like and then pretty much you know from anchor watt to the end i'm just not a fan i just don't by then i'm just bored um and not really interested highlights for me 
I would have waited forever and lift me up. You could add the more we live, let go. And you'd have a three song EP that would be just as good as uh, the record. So two things that, you know, while you guys were talking, that sort of popped into my head. I remember when I was younger, absolutely loving Angkor Wat. I just thought it was cool. And now when I was listening to it, I was completely unimpressed, which I was just like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. And the other thing that I wanted to point out, certainly with regards to Lift Me Up, Paul, I I am absolutely loving Squire's bass sound on on the four tracks that that yeah. he's on. And I just I the the bass sound in Lift Me Up is just freaking nasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at, at this point, as you said, Paul, for us that you know, this this period was and and all of this sort of bringing in all of the different people and mixing them up and 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 seeing, you know, different songs played close to the edge and awaken it allowed people like you and and I to educate ourselves and to to immerse ourselves and to understand what all this back catalog was for. And given the fact that we were, you know, at that wonderful age where, you know, you had the, the, the time and energy to sort of go down these rabbit holes, it was wonderful. And I'm glad that we had the opportunity to sort of grow up this way. This tour was sort of the thing that brought Trevor and Rick together and yes. brought their mutual, you know, sort of admiration for one another. And, and the way the chemistry that, that, that John and Trevor showed on this tour, like this, you know, was the seed of, of many things to come many years later, here they are touring as ARW, you know, the seed was planted here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. As always, we've enjoyed sharing it with you. Uh, I suspect there are a lot of thoughts and comments about these two albums, and we encourage you to share those with us. We are available on the major forms of social media. That would be Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as at Progpala there, or you can search for Progressive Palaver. You can email us, progpala at gmail.com. And Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on both iTunes and Google Play. And we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. As we continue celebrating Yes 50 by Can. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of. Per- Jesus Christ, what is my problem? Wow, Joe. It's been a long day. I'll just cut in at this point. No pressure. On the, I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode... <laughs> <laughs>